Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, this will be a difficult show to do because of the subject matter and the fact that it's subject of uh, some very sensitive information. So that makes it more likely that I'll be misunderstood, and I don't want to be misunderstood. So please don't take any comments from this program out of context. I request that you are charitable in your interpretation of anything I'm about to say, because today we are going to talk about the Ravi Zacharias scandal and the truth of Christianity. Now, I have not commented on the Ravi Zacharias scandal until this program today because I wanted to make sure that I knew the facts. I wanted to resist the temptation that is so prevalent in the age of social media to be compelled to have an instant opinion on developing events and to be the first to send a virtue signal. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to just condemn whatever allegedly supposed was supposed to have happened, especially before the facts were known. Not only that, but I think we owe it to our brothers and sisters in Christ to contact them personally before going public. I'm talking about the brothers and sisters in Christ at RZIM. And I would expect any friends that I had at RZIM to contact me first before they went public with any statement if they had heard of something that went wrong here at crossexamine.org. I think that's consistent also with Matthew 18. If there's a problem, you go to the person privately first. Now, I have spoken with my friend at RZIM before doing this show, and I want to say the facts are now in. They are known, they are verified, and these facts, in my friend's assessment, are not just devastating, they are decimating. These facts come from a report from an independent firm that was commissioned by Robbie's own ministry, RZIM. And many of the facts have come from the victims themselves, and these facts have been verified by looking at Robbie's own smartphones, which included text messages, they included emails, they included pictures. And the truth of the matter is, is that Robbie Zacharias has been living a double life. On one hand, he was living the life of supposedly a respected Christian apologist, an evangelist, and a ministry leader. On the other hand, his hidden life was essentially a serial sexual predator, a man who used his reputation to groom women, many of them massage therapists, in order to engage in immoral behavior against their will. Now the question is, why didn't people in his ministry or his own family see this coming earlier? I mean, how were they duped? I think they were duped for the same reason that Robbie's victims were duped. I mean, this was Robbie Zacharias, the trusted and respected apologist, an older, wiser man who has led so many people to the Lord over the years. If anyone could be trusted, it was, it was surely to be Robbie, right? 
I mean, that's what everyone thought. When I first heard about any of this a couple of years ago, I thought so too. Robbie can be trusted. Well, we were all wrong. And let me point out a key difference here. There's a difference between presuming someone is innocent, which is a good thing. You should presume people are innocent. There's a difference between presuming someone is innocent and assuming someone is innocent. That's not a good thing. You presume innocence before you look at the evidence, but once you look at the evidence, you have to follow the evidence where it leads. You can't refuse to look at the evidence and assume someone is innocent regardless of their reputation. And Christians, of all people, should know this. We understand that human beings are depraved. And now that we have the evidence, the presumption of innocence has been refuted by the facts. Now, in retrospect, and as you well know, ladies and gentlemen, retrospect or hindsight is always 2020. But in retrospect, there were certain behaviors by Robbie that should have been red flags to at least someone at RZIM. For example, when he refused to turn over his personal devices. In the case of Lori Ann Thompson, the Canadian woman who accused Robbie of grooming her and then making unwanted sexual advances and requests. According to the report, which you can read at RZIM, here is footnote 11 in the report. Lori Thompson had obviously accused Robbie of some immoral sexual behavior and here's what this footnote says about this incident quote mr robbie zacharias or mr zacharias told certain members of his staff that the phone records and full complete emails would exonerate him but he did not give them access to these documents two high level staff approached him directly asking for the phone records since he claimed they would prove exculpatory Both of these staff members told us, this is the investigating firm, us, Mr. Zacharias responded to the request with rage and threatened to resign from the organization, unquote. Methinks you protest too loudly. When someone is thrown into rage over records which were supposed to excuse him of the offense, that should be an indication that he's trying to hide something. Now, the report does not blame anyone at the, mist- at the ministry for complicity. However, this was obviously a missed signal that Robbie was hiding something. But the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, even if they had caught Robbie then, Robbie had apparently been doing this for many years. Now, the people who are hurting the most are the victims. And Robbie's family who I am told are not just devastated, but they are decimated. Now, I personally, I don't know any of them. I don't know any of Robbie's family. I hardly knew Robbie. I was introduced to Robbie by my mentor, Dr. Norman Geisler, who was once a professor to Robbie as well as he was to me. Of course, Robbie was older than me, and uh, he was, let's see, Robbie was probably, I don't know, um, he was probably 12 years younger than Norm Geisler. So he was a student of Geisler, and uh, I was about 15 years younger than Robbie, so we were not in the same class. I think Robbie may have gone to school at uh, Trinity up there in Illinois when, when uh, in Illinois when when Dr. Geisler was there. But I I learned about him through Dr. Geisler, 
And uh, a few years ago, I answered questions with Ravi and a few others on a panel uh, at a conference for the NRB Network. We're all on the NRB Network uh, there in Nashville. Uh, but I never shared the stage with him otherwise, just at one time. And over the years, Ravi has endorsed books that Dr. Geisler and I wrote. He endorsed Legislating Morality. He endorsed I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And I asked him to actually write the foreword for Stealing from God, which to my surprise, he agreed to do. Now, I didn't have much interaction with him. And I've since learned from people who actually work at RZIM. In fact, people even traveled with him. They actually said they didn't interact with him much either. Not in a private capacity. In fact, one person told me, he said about Ravi, he was a very private person. Well, apparently now we know why. Anyway, let me point out that the foreword that Robbie wrote for Stealing from God is going to be removed from all future printings, not because what he wrote was false, but because no victim of Robbie's serial depravity should ever have to hear or see his name again. And I, I think I just read that his publisher is going to stop printing his books. Again, it's not because they contain falsehoods. Most of Robbie's teachings from the stage... And his teachings in his books are, of course, true. But given the gravity of the sin, a sin he never publicly repented of, but instead doubled down on his innocence at the terrible expense of others, makes the propagation of him in any form unbearable. I mean, it's especially unbearable to the victims. It's unbearable to me, and it's unbearable to the publishers as well. So it's going to be taken out, and his books are not going to be printed at, at all. Now, I have a lot more to say about this right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, back in two. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. And we're talking about a very difficult topic today, the Ravi Zacharias, Ravi Zacharias scandal. And the truth of Christianity. How does it affect the truth of Christianity? I'll get there. A number of my friends have spoken about this, colleagues of mine. In fact, one of them is a Mike Winger. Mike uh, does a great job on his YouTube channel called The Bible Thinker. He actually did an hour and a half show on this where he actually read the entire report uh, about Ravi. And he commented on it as he went through it. And I want to share with you what one person uh, wrote in a YouTube comment that was watching Mike do this. And this person felt just watching it was unbearable. Here's what she said in this comment. She said, I'm in the middle of watching this, but something is eating at me and I have to get this out. I am a survivor of sexual assault and abuse. I am so angry, especially at other women who keep pushing the fact that these victims are only now speaking up. She says, do you have any idea how hard it is to even go through something like this, especially if it's someone everyone trusts and respects? You really think people will believe you that easily? Do you really think that they're, they're going to believe you that easily? No, they won't. I wasn't believed when I tried to get help. And that teaches you to shut up and endure it in silence. You're literally victimized twice when you have to face angry people who think you're lying. Why put yourself through that? It's easy for, for all of you to armchair quarterback and act like, well, if it were me, I would, I would do X. Yeah, you think. You'll, you'll think that from the comfort of your chair, but when you've been assaulted and your soul is literally crushed 
and you feel self-hatred, fear, unworthiness, anger, pain, and just literal emotional torment, you will act totally different than you think you would sitting there in your comfort right now. You have no idea the hell someone goes through when something like this happens. It's physical abuse, yes, but the mental abuse far surpasses that. It will change you, and it will be with you forever. Imagine the worst, most disgusting feeling and mix that with fear, sorrow, and unworthiness because you feel like you are worthless after that. Now imagine you have to stand before people and tell them all the details about what happened as they judge you and they decide if they think you're telling the truth. It's your word against some predator that knows how to manipulate people. Before you judge these victims, try on some level to realistically put yourself in their, in their shoes. It's one of the worst experiences you could ever endure, unquote. Yeah, we need to pray for people that have been victimized by Ravi. Here's what Ann Thompson said. She was victimized by him. Quote, I knew the world, or I knew the world to be an unsafe place before I met Ravi Zacharias. But I had yet hope that there were some safe and sacred spaces. I no longer live with that hope. I trusted him. I trusted Christendom. That trust is irreparably and catastrophically shattered, unquote. One blogger put it this way. She said, quote, We expect people who do monstrous things to look like a monster, but Jesus warned about wolves who look like sheep. Sexual abusers are often the people who appear so good or talented that they are allowed to bend or push the usual safeguarding rules because we trust them. Indeed, that's true. Ravi used the trust that he had, the reputation that he had to get what he wanted. Now, some people have emailed me about this. I have a hostile former listener who wrote a very sarcastic piece where he put a number of questions in. One of his questions, which didn't have sarcasm in it, but it's a good question that I want to answer. Uh, actually, it was sarcasm isn't the right word. It was kind of dripping with contempt. Anyway, here's what he said. It's a question I want to address. And it's a question I want to address because many of us may have our faith shaken by this kind of thing. Here's what he said. How do you explain the all-too-typical fall of someone like Ravi Zacharias and the legions of theoretically committed or deeply committed Christian leaders before him? If Christianity is infused with the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, how does this keep happening throughout the ranks of Christian leaders, from world-famous evangelists like Ravi Zacharias to garden-variety pastors, unquote? Well, let me challenge the premise of the question. He says this is typical. It's not all too typical. For every Ravi, there are millions of Christians living moral but not perfect lives. Do Christians serving the poor, building hospitals, and digging wells in Africa ever make the news? For every Carl Lentz, the pastor who just fell up there at Hillsong, there are thousands of pastors living moral but not perfect lives. Do pastors doing what's right, do they ever make news? No. Secondly, People in positions of authority and power have more opportunities to sin and are better known when they do. Say, James says this, the half-brother of Jesus says they're going to be judged more severely. Teachers are going to be judged more severely. James 3.1. Number three, I want to point out that we can grieve the Holy Spirit because we have free will. 
we have all of the Holy Spirit, but we don't allow the Holy Spirit to have all of us. That's our problem. And finally, we all struggle with sin. All the supposed heroes of the Old Testament and even the New Testament struggle with sin. Paul famously struggles with sin in Romans 7. He says, what I, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, this I do. And he says, who's going to save me from this body of death? And he says, Jesus will. Now, there's a big difference between what Paul is admitting, and it's true of every Christian that we struggle with sin, and what Ravi Zacharias was doing. Ravi didn't seem to be struggling anymore. He wasn't struggling. He wasn't trying to not do it. He was embracing it. He was planning it. He was giving in to temptation. C.S. Lewis famously said this. He said, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting it, not by giving in, unquote. Once you've given in, you're not fighting it anymore. You're not struggling anymore. In fact, if you're not struggling to avoid sin, you may have, been, you may have just given into it, which is no extra charge for this, ladies and gentlemen. That's what progressive Christianity does, so-called progressive Christianity. It's not, it's not progressive and it's not Christian. It's regressive. It's moving away from Jesus. And if it's disagreeing with Jesus, it's not Christian. They're giving in. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, No temptation has overtaken you except that what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There's always a way out. In fact, the best way out is not to put yourself in the position to begin with. I'll talk about that a little bit later in the program. The Billy Graham rule, the Modesto Manifesto. I'll get to that. But notice, sometimes one little sin allows the next little sin to be easier, which allows the next little sin to be even easier before you know it, you're in full-blown rebellion. Lewis, again, in the screw tape letter says this, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Now, I've never seen this, uh, unquote, I've never seen this program, but I've heard about it. Have you heard about or seen the program Breaking Bad? As I say, I've never seen it. But apparently... One little sin leads this guy to actually becoming a full-blown drug lord or something, a full-blown criminal. And that's why sin is something that we have to continually fight because just one little sin can lead to so much more. We're all sinful. But on the other hand, I don't think we ought to get cynical and trust no one. Instead... I think we must always be aware uh, aware that we're all susceptible to being led into sin by our own desires. As James put it, he puts it in uh, James chapter 1. He says, quote, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The wages of sin is death. And on the way, it brings a lot of pain. Think about how many people are in pain right now over this. Robbie's gone, but think about his, his, his victims, the people he victimized. Think about his family 
who I honestly believe were blindsided from all I know. Think about the people that worked at RZIN. They're shattered. Now, when James talks about being tempted and being dragged away, lured and enticed. Enticed means to be caught by like bait, by being trapped like an animal is trapped in a, in a, in a, in a, in a trap or catching a fish. You're trapped. Sin traps you. James also said, be doers of the word, not just hearers. And we all know this, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, my friend Jay Warner Wallace makes this point over and over again. The cold case homicide detective. He says, sex, money, and power are what tempt us most often. They're, they're the motives behind most, if not all, of our sins. Sex, money, and power. He says when he finds somebody that's been murdered, he knows that guy is dead for one of only three reasons or a combination of the three. There was a sex issue, a money issue, or a power issue. And if you think about why we sin, those are the reasons why we sin. Now, sex, money, and power are good things. The problem is, is they're so good that we will often take shortcuts to try and get them. We'll use illicit means to try and get them. In fact, Robbie Zacharias used money and power to get sex. I'll talk about that a little bit later in a few minutes. But before we move on, I want to mention that there's many very qualified apologists and thinkers, philosophers, theologians who've done videos on this. Some of these folks are are my friends and colleagues, people like David Wood. If you go to Acts 17, watch David Wood's outstanding video on this. Mike Winger, I already mentioned him. He does an hour and a half on it. Elisa Childers has a a short video on it, as does Melissa Doherty. And John McRae, the guy who does uh, uh, What Do You Meme? They're all great videos. Now, there's no sense for me to repeat what they've said. I'm going to go in a different direction for the rest of the program. What I want to investigate is how a scandal like this impacts the truth claims of Christianity. Now, Mike Lacona, my friend, has a very good five-minute video on this. Uh, But I'd like to go a little bit further. I want to spend the rest of the time on it. And here's what I want to do. Robbie Zacharias once wrote a book called Can Man Live Without God? Today, I want to ask the question, could God live without Robbie Zacharias? What I mean by that is this. Do terrible sins committed by professing Christians, victims or sins that victimize scores, if not hundreds of people, do those sins somehow disprove Christianity? The answer, right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek. We're back in two. A couple of quick announcements, ladies and gentlemen, before we get back into the program. I'm going to be at Vision Church right here in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's going to be... uh, home game for me so to speak on tuesday night the 23rd of february that's this tuesday is 23rd february is, is that is that tuesday uh, yeah it is uh, all details are on our website crossexamine.org then on march 6th they'll be out at little rock arkansas at the lead conference that's a youth conference in little rock uh, and uh, all the details again are on our website right there also i had mentioned jim wallace just a just before the break jay warner wallace Uh, has a new course called Cold Case Christianity. And uh, if you sign up in the next couple of days, you can be part of the premium version. The first Zoom session is this Monday. So if you want to be a part of that, uh, go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see Jim's course there. You will have several sessions with Jim live uh, for Q&A in addition to watching a bunch of uh, great video. 
We're talking today about the Robbie Zacharias scandal and the truth of Christianity. And just before the break, I was asking the question, can God live without Robbie Zacharias? In other words, did the sins that he commit somehow disprove Christianity? Well, obviously, when a high-profile Christian falls, it does raise questions. But I don't think any of those questions disprove the truth of Christianity. In fact, I think they do the opposite. They lend support for the truth of Christianity, and they tend to disprove the claims of atheism and other worldviews. Atheism, relativism, postmodernism, Buddhism, Hinduism cannot explain any of this. Why? Because the true immorality of this can only be explained by the Christian worldview. In fact, I'm going to give you 10 facts about this that show that when evil like evil things happen like this they don't disprove christianity they actually lend support for christianity the first point i want to make is this the truth exists not your truth we wouldn't excuse ravi or any other sexual predator or predator or any kind of criminal for saying look man i'm just living out my truth so you must respect it. No, there isn't my truth. There isn't your truth. There is just the truth. Ravi had no claim on his truth to do what he wanted to do. There's the truth, not your truth. There's the truth, not his truth. That's number one. Number two, this is another example. This entire scandal is another pointer to the fact that evil exists. If evil doesn't exist, Robbie Zacharias wasn't really wrong, and yet we all know he was wrong. And Christianity is the only worldview that adequately solves the problem of evil. In fact, Christianity actually is in place to address the problem of evil. That's what it's all about. You have evil introduced in the world, first with Satan and then with the fall of Adam and Eve, and then the whole rest of the story is how God inserts himself into the bloodstream of humanity to bring forth the promised Messiah to save the world from evil. That's what the story's all about. Christianity is the answer to the problem of evil. Other worldviews either deny evil, they claim it's an illusion, or they have an inadequate solution for the problem of evil. Ultimately, you know what's going to happen to evil? It's going to be quarantined in a place called hell. Until that point, we deal with evil, we fight evil, we're subject in some ways to evil, which includes sickness and death, but ultimately when the full number of the Gentiles come in, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11, Jesus is going to come back and end it all, and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. There's going to be people who have accepted him and want to be with him for all eternity and those that do not, and they will be quarantined in a place called hell. So the truth exists, not your truth. Evil exists, and we all know it does. Number three, if evil exists, objective morality must exist. Otherwise, there's no way to measure evil. There's no way to say that something is evil because evil doesn't exist on its own. Evil exists only as a lack in a good thing. If objective morality does not exist, then all the outrage we feel and think about this Robbie Zacharias scandal, that just merely reflects our preferences and opinions. That's all. If relativism is true, and there is no objective morality, 
We have no grounds to condemn Robbie Zacharias for his behavior or anyone else for their behavior. Even if they're a murderer, we have no grounds, no ontological grounds to say that's wrong. Because if there is no ontological standard of good, then you can't say that any behavior that deviates from that ontological standard is wrong. Because if that standard doesn't exist, nothing is wrong. Everything's just a matter of opinion. Again, evil doesn't exist on its own. It exists as a lack and a good thing. Evil is like cancer. If you take all the cancer out of a body, you've got a better body. If you take all the body out of the cancer, what do you got? Nothing. It doesn't exist on its own. Now, relativism is false if just one thing is morally wrong. If Ravi was wrong, then relativism is false and objective morality exists. And objective morality means there just isn't a, a good standard, but we're obligated to obey that standard. And there's no way to get obligations from just naturalism, from atheism. You can only get obligations from a person. Which means that if the truth exists, evil exists, objective morality exists, that means that God exists. Because God is what we mean by the standard of objective morality. Again, if God doesn't exist, nothing is objectively good, nothing is objectively bad. You can say you didn't like what Ravi did, but it wouldn't be objectively wrong unless there's a standard of good. And that standard is God's nature who obligates us to obey it. Number five, one of the truths that becomes apparent when you see an awful scandal like this is that people are made in the image of God. And people are valuable and should therefore be respected. This is an objective moral truth, and it makes sense in the Christian worldview. It makes no sense on atheism. People are no more objectively valuable than pigs. In fact, atheist Peter Singer, who teaches at Princeton, thought an infant was no more valuable than a pig. Well, there's no way to measure value if there's no standard, and atheists have no standard. So even his opinion about pigs being just as valuable as an infant, or maybe even more valuable than an infant, it's just his opinion because there's no standard outside of himself. Now, we all know, ladies and gentlemen, we all know that people are valuable and that's why you don't abuse them. But people are only valuable if there's a standard beyond them. And again, that standard is God, his nature. Number six, the sixth truth that comes out of a scandal like this is that we have free will. And we have free will in order to love. But of course, this free will also gives us the capacity to do evil. Free will also makes us responsible for our behavior. We don't really think that Robbie is innocent because he had no free will and was just dancing to his DNA, as Richard Dawkins famously said. Right? We don't think, we don't think Robbie is just a molecular machine or was just a molecular machine, a moist robot who was just dancing to his DNA. He had no responsibility because he had no free will. He was just following his instincts and following his DNA and following the laws of physics, which caused him to do what he did. Of course not. We know he's morally responsible precisely because he had free will. Atheism can't explain free will. Atheism denies free will. Well, if you're denying free will, why would you punish somebody like Ravi or Hitler for that matter? Number seven, the seven truth that becomes even more apparent by something like this, by some evil event like this or evil scandal like this, is that consciousness is not an illusion. 
as Daniel Dennett, the new atheist, claimed that consciousness was an illusion. Well, if consciousness is an illusion, then how can we say anybody is conscious of anything and therefore responsible for anything? I mean, this is the the extent to which atheists will go to avoid the obvious. Consciousness is an illusion. One wonders if he was conscious when he wrote that. You've got to be conscious to even say anything, to even make assessments like that. You also have to be conscious in order to make free will decisions and therefore then to be morally responsible. The eighth truth that falls out of a scandal like this and Christianity warns us from the beginning about is that we have a fallen nature which means we are susceptible to sin and particularly to sex, money, and power. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? Proverbs 4.23. Man, memorize this proverb, ladies and gentlemen. Because the proverb says this, above all else, guard your heart. Because everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart. Because everything you do flows from it. Well, if your heart is deceitful and wicked, you have to guard it. Because if you're going to get pulled away, if you're going to be dragged away, as James said, if you're going to be enticed to pursue idols, to pursue evil, then everything you will do will flow from that. And your life will fall apart as you hurt other people around you. Like Robbie did. We have a fallen nature. It's easy to be bad. It's hard to be good. It's very easy to be bad. It's hard to be good. It's easy to be selfish. It's easy to follow your base desires. It's hard to resist your base desires. Which is why Lewis said what he said earlier about you don't really understand what resisting temptation is if you give in to sin all the time. If you don't guard your heart, sin is easy. Holiness is hard. So the truth exists, not your truth. Evil exists. Objective morality exists, which means that God exists, and people are made in the image of God, and therefore they're valuable and they should be respected. We have free will. We're also conscious. Consciousness is not an illusion. We have a fallen nature. That's number eight. And the heart is deceitful and wicked. And we have to guard our heart because everything we do flows from it. The ninth truth that flows right out of this scandal is that sex isn't just physical. Sex is sacred because people are sacred. And sex has the unique capacity to either love sacred people or decimate them. There's a huge difference between a massage and sex. Both are physical, but sex is much more than physical. It's emotional. It's spiritual. It's psychological. It's biological. There's so much more to sex than just a physical act. If there wasn't, then there would be no objection to what Robbie has done. Yet our culture is trying to teach you that sex is just physical. Just score. Just go. Just go do it. There's so much sexual sin. I'll prank to her.
about a very dark issue, the scandal of Robbie Zacharias and how he negatively affected, dramatically negatively affected, decimated people with this. But we're also addressing the question of how does it affect the truth of Christianity? Well, it doesn't affect the truth of Christianity. In fact, I think when evil like this occurs, it reaffirms truths that the Christian worldview puts forth. We were talking about number nine, that sex isn't just physical, that it's spiritual, that it's moral, that it's psychological, that it's emotional. There's so much more to sex than just a physical act. If there wasn't more to it, then the Robbie Zacharias issue would be no big deal. But there's so much more to it. Sex is like fire. You put it in your fireplace, it's wonderful. It'll warm you. You get it anywhere else in your house, it will burn your house down. Maybe not immediately, but over the long term it will. As I mentioned earlier, sex has the unique capacity to either love sacred people or decimate them. We can't treat it casually like our culture wants us to do. Tragically, Ravi Zacharias did not treat sex as sacred, and he decimated people. Finally, number 10, and there's more. I just came up with these 10. There's more ways this affirms the truths of Christianity. Number 10 is, is that all sin, and especially sex, has the capacity to make us stupid to the point that we'll risk everything important to get it. And all you need to do, ladies and gentlemen, is just read Romans chapter 1, because Paul talks about this. He talks about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who, the key phrase here is, suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know God exists because of invisible qualities, but they, they suppress the truth about him to go their own way. And he says, for even though they knew God, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Think about this. Their thinking became futile. If you suppress the truth long enough, your thinking is going to become futile. He goes on to talk about sexual impurity. Paul goes on to talk about how God gave them over to shameful lusts and ultimately to a depraved mind. That if you go down the sex road too far, illicit, immoral sex, it will make you stupid. You will have a, you, you, it will result in futile thinking and a depraved mind. God will give you over to it. My friend Ed Fazer has written about this on his blog. If you want to search for Fazer, just, just search for Ed Fazer, F-E-S-E-R. Look for his blog. Very insightful material on his blog. This goes back maybe five years. Here's what he wrote about this. He says, sex is an act which consummates in the most physically and emotionally intimate or unifying way possible those romantic relationships in which we seek to remedy our sense of incompleteness. This adds a further psychologically rich layer of pleasure to the act, which greatly enhances what is already intensely pleasurable 
just at the just at the raw animal level. It's not surprising, therefore, that the satisfaction of this kind of pleasure promises us can lead us to all sorts of deeply irrational things. For just a few moments of sexual pleasure, many people will risk damage to their reputations and the breakup of marriages and families both their own and those of others. Sexual or romantic passion can prevent people from seeing what is certain, or what, what is, can, can, excuse me, can prevent people from seeing that a certain person is simply not a suitable marriage partner or someone with, with whom to have children. Romantic and sexual jealousy can tempt people to spy on and stalk the object of their affections, or even to commit murder. The quest for romantic and sexual pleasure can take on a compulsive character. Hence, people become promiscuous, or addicted to pornography, or prone to excessive romantic fantasizing, constantly falling in and out of love. Unquote. Fazer goes on to say that, quote, sexual vice makes you stupid, unquote. This is what Paul is talking about, this futile thinking. And if you look around at the shadowed lives, the shattered lives caused by sexual vice and caused by this Ravi Zacharias scandal, that should let you know this point about stupidity is undeniable. It's futile. Imagine what Ravi did. He risked everything for this. And the only way you don't see this is that if you're currently in sexual vice yourself, that's why you can't see it. Again, sex has the unique capacity to love people and unify people. But because it's so powerful, it also has the unique capacity to decimate people. That is why the Bible says flee sexual immorality. Paul says every other sin is a sin against others. But when you're sinning sexually, you're also sinning against your own body. Sin also thrives in isolation, said Howard Hendricks, the great Dallas Theological Seminary professor. Sin thrives in isolation. That's why we need accountability. That's why we need people to ask us the hard questions. And this takes me all the way back to 1948. In 1948, Billy Graham was doing a series of evangelistic messages in Modesto, California, He was there with his team, Cliff Barrows, Grady Wilson, George Beverly Shea, and he wanted to avoid any situation that would even give the appearance of compromise or or suspicion. So they had an accountability agreement between them. It became known as the Modesto Manifesto because it originated out there in Modesto, California. And they... They committed to one another that they they would never be in the presence of another woman who was not their wife alone. They also made similar commitments with regard to money and publicity. So sex, money, and power, they wanted to avoid any kind of even appearance of impropriety. They didn't want to get anywhere near the black hole that could suck them in. So one of the ways to avoid this, ladies and gentlemen, is to never put yourself in a position where you can go through with any desire that may overtake you and drag you away. In fact, you can actually read about this on, the, on Wikipedia, the, the Modesto Manifesto. We try and live it here at crossexamine.org. And here's what the um, Wikipedia article says about it. 
He says, from that time onward, speaking of 1948, when Billy and his team enforced the Modesto Manifesto, Graham made a point of not traveling, meeting, or eating alone with a woman other than his wife, Ruth. Graham biographer Carl Wacker observed that, quote, over the years, Graham received intense media scrutiny, but hardly anyone accused him of violating any of those four principles, unquote. The four principles were sex, finances, what he did with local churches, and also any publicity. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it goes much further than this. It's not just being in the presence of someone with whom you might appear to be engaged in some inappropriate or immoral activity. Now, this kind of thing can come right into your iPhone, can come right into your computer, can come right in to your personal device. So this is why we have to have accountability there. We have to have filters there. Or we have to give other people the permission at any time to look at any of our devices and to look at any of our search engines, any of our browsers, any of our computers. Not only for our own good, but for the good of the people that we love. Now, the Bible, as you know, is filled with examples of evil followers of God. There is only one exception, and that exception, of course, is Jesus, the perfect God-man. Christianity is true because the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, died and rose from the dead. And we are to place our faith not in flawed, sinful people, but in the sinless God-man who died for us. So if your faith is shaken by this, I think you need to think about it a little bit longer. Because our faith is not in Ravi Zacharias. Your faith is not in your pastor. Your faith is not in your favorite teacher. Your faith is not in anybody that you might admire who claims to be a Christian. Your faith is in the one flawless person who will never let you down, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Anointed One. He took all of our sins upon himself. And if you're outraged by this evil as I am, the only worldview that deals with it properly, the only worldview that even makes sense of it, is Christianity. As I mentioned before, the ten things that I just, off the top of my head, thought about from this particular scandal that become crystal clear is that the truth exists, not your truth. Evil exists. Objective morality exists. God exists. People are made in the image of God and valuable and should be respected. We have free will. Consciousness is not an illusion. We really have consciousness. We have a fallen nature, which means we're susceptible to sin by sex, money, and power, which means we have to take precautions. Also, sex isn't just physical. It's sacred because people are sacred. And all sin, especially sex, if we get involved in it illicitly, can lead to futile thinking and a depraved mind. So we have to put precautions. We have to have accountability. We have to follow Jesus and not men. I wish I didn't have to do this program, ladies and gentlemen, but it needed to be said. There are many other folks that have talked about other aspects of this. I encourage you to go 
look at them, as I mentioned at the top of the program. And Lord willing, I'll see you here next week. Please pray for the victims of Robbie Zacharias. Pray for his family and others. In Christ's name. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.